Today we'll be looking at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians as we continue looking at Paul's epistle to that church there in Ephesus, uh, focusing just today on verses 7 and 8. We've been considering the last several weeks the believer's wealth in Christ Jesus. We've been plowing the depths of this glorious doxology, which begins in verse 3 and ends in verse 14, one long sentence. And today we'll be thinking about redemption, and as we think about this paragraph as a whole, we must think of it as a, as a tapestry, a tapestry with complex, the fabric of the Trinity woven all throughout. And so as we say, well, verses 3 to 6 focus on the work of the Father, it's not as though verses 7 to 12, what we're beginning now, as we consider the work of Christ, as though the Father is detached from what Christ has done, because the Trinity is in perfect harmony with the individual persons of the Trinity. And so we'll see, we'll begin this time looking at the Son of God and his redemption that took place by his blood. In verses 13 to 14, in a few weeks, we'll see how that is applied and how we're sealed in the Spirit, how our salvation is guaranteed. We saw the last few weeks the Father's plan, or better, his determination, that he chose a people from before the foundation of the world. He chose them to be holy. He predestined us to adoption as sons. And so the transition between verses 6 to 7, where we're at today, is almost as though we're moving from heaven to earth, from past to present, because these are present, real realities uh, that we experience today. Um, you can consider from father to son as well. And as we, the, the main, major theme is going to be redemption in our sermon. And I've entitled it, Redemption Accomplished, because what Jesus set forth to do and the triune God set forth to do was to redeem a sinful people, and he has accomplished that. Amen? He's accomplished redemption for his people. I, liked, I read a story this week of an analogy in regards to this I'd like to share with you. A little boy some years ago by the name of Tom carried his new boat to the edge of the river that he had built. And he tied a string to it, and he wanted to see this little sailboat just floating around on the river there. And as he watched it, he sat down in the sun and he enjoyed it, looking at the work of his hands. Suddenly a strong gust and a strong current came and the string broke and the ship started going downstream. He ran, he searched, he ran down the shoreline. He looked for it all day long and finally it went out of sight and he did not see it again that day. Now several days later, he's walking home from school and he sees in a shopkeeper's window the boat, it's exactly his boat. And he went in and he said, sir, you've got my boat in the window. He says, no, I just bought that today from a fisherman that found it. If you want it, you'll have to pay $1. So the boy says, I got to get my boat back. So he runs home. He counts all of his coins, exactly $1. He goes back and he buys. He says, sir, I'm back to buy my boat. Here's the money for my boat. He left the store having purchased it, hugging his boat saying, now you're twice mine. First I made you, now I have bought you. And you see the analogy that God has created us, really by the work of Christ. He created us, right? We're created, and then we've fallen into sin. And then he's got to take the steps to come and to redeem us and to buy us back. So let's read verses 3 to 8 together just to get the the larger context. Follow along with me in your Bibles. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's go before him and pray once again. Would you bow with me? Father... These words are rich. Uh, Lord, these truths are huge. And Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding as we would dive into these truths. Lord, that you would feed our souls today, that you would encourage us of the wealth that we have as your children by virtue of being in Christ. Lord, send the Spirit. Give us eyes of understanding. Give us hearts of understanding. Empower the ones speaking, Lord, and we will give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just when we thought things couldn't get much better than what happened last week, predestined to adoption as sons, remember, we're not, we're not foster children, uh, last week, last time, we're not foster children in a foster home walking on eggshells, just if we mess up, we're booted out. We are permanently adopted into the family of God, and nothing can overturn that. And today, we're going to see the truth, and the reason why is because we have been bought, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we've used this analogy of we're going on an expedition through a a diamond mine. And if you're in Christ, you can pick up all the gemstones along the way that will fit in your pockets or in your backpack. And today's gemstones are redemption and forgiveness of sins, his precious blood, and his grace lavished upon us, and we'll unpack those as we go through. C.H. Spurgeon, speaking of forgiveness, said this, could there be a sweeter word in any language than that word forgiveness? When it sounds in a guilty sinner's ear like the silver notes of jubilee to the captive Israelite, Blessed and forever blessed be that dear star of pardon which shines into the condemned cell and gives the perishing a gleam of hope amid the midnight of despair. Can it be possible that sin, such as my sin, can be forgiven, forgiven altogether and forever? That is a man that is impacted with the gravity of these truths, a man that is keenly aware of his sin but keenly shocked, how could it be that God would forgive every one of our sins forever? So today we'll be looking at this under four heads. There there happen to be four R's. The rudiments of redemption, the remittance that secures redemption, the results of redemption, which is forgiveness of sin, and then finally the riches of redemption. So first of all, the rudiments of redemption. What are the rudiments? The rudiments are the first principles. They're the basics of redemption. And the biblical um, text and inspired word that we have is very rich in describing what redemption is. Now, first of all, I'd like to say what redemption is not. 
Because we hear a lot of talk about redemption. If you watch ESPN, for example, if you watch CNN, you'll hear the word redemption being used. What it is not, it is not when the announcer in the middle of an NFL game during halftime speaks of a team that has just totally blown it in the first half and speaks of how they're going to come back to redeem themselves in the second half. It's not speaking of a running back that's fumbled the ball two times in the first half, and the announcer says, well, we wonder how he's going to redeem himself now. It is not even Tiger Woods because of his immoral lifestyle that has been exposed, and he stands up in front of a camera with a so-called apology, and, of course, the commentators say he has redeemed himself because he has stood up in front of the camera. No, redemption... In the biblical sense, is pictured for us in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Redemption is deliverance as a result of a payment of a ransom. As I said, it's pictured in the Old Testament as you consider the children of Israel as they were in bondage in Egypt for how long? 400 plus years, right? In bondage, crying out to God. There's the promise of redemption in Exodus 6. And then finally they're redeemed, the ten plagues come, they cross the Red Sea, and in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, he says, in part, in your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. He has delivered them, he has rescued them, he's brought them into safety. Israel was delivered from oppression. And this is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. Jesus said in Matthew 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve. And to what? What's his life mission? Give his life as a ransom for many. Paul brings out the same thing in 1 Timothy 2.6. He gave himself as a ransom. The Son of God gives himself as a ransom, gives himself as a payment for guilty, unworthy sinners, the sinless Lamb of God. This is an amazing fact to contemplate. And apart from Christ's provision for you, you perpetually exist in a prison of guilt and shame. Well, what does this Greek word mean here in Ephesians 1.7? We have redemption. It's apolutrosis in the original. It means to buy back as a slave or a captive. It means to deliver. As I said, it involves the payment of a ransom for a deliverance. And if you look look carefully at the text, it's in the present tense. In him, we have redemption. A valid translation would be that we continually are experiencing redemption in Christ. We are continually having redemption. And also in the original, and this doesn't come through in the uh, English translations, is the definite article is there. And so if you translated it woodenly, it is, in him we have the redemption through his blood. Now, why is that important? Well, it is not just any redemption that will do. It is not just any old Passover that will do. It is not just any old blood sacrifice that will do. This is the redemption, the only redemption that is effectual unto salvation. The shedding of the Son of God's own blood on behalf of unworthy sinners. It is only by his blood. This is the redemption, the only redemption. Well, secondly, you have been redeemed from your slavery. Most of us would agree that we were formerly slaves to sin. Look back at your life before you came to Christ. 
Look back at your life patterns, your sinful patterns that you can now recognize as sinful habits and patterns, and you were enslaved to those things until He has come to set us free. Before we were born again, before we experienced a new nature, we were slaves. Now, it's important to consider the the context of the first century. As most of you know, the Roman world had upwards of 6 million slaves. The slave business was a huge business, the buying and selling of slaves. Um, And so if you had a family member that was a slave or a friend, you would have to go buy that slave and purchase him in order to give him freedom. And the way they did it, there was actually a certificate And the root word of the the word for redemption, lutro, was what was signed. Ransom, payment, paid. It's paid. And so the certificate would be signed, and you would then be free. Most of us, when we think of slavery, don't go back quite that far, but we're familiar with the African slave trade, aren't we? In the last couple hundred years, um, uh, the African slave trade has, has been big. Um, up until um, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and when others in England put an end to this. In fact, when I was in East Africa over three years ago, um, at that pastor's conference there, there there's a town there just north of Dar es Salaam where I was at, on the Indian Ocean. It's called Bagamoyo. And in Swahili, it means to lay down your heart. And this was the last place that those slaves would come from all over East Africa as they went into this small town before they were shipped off to various places. And it was very common for slaves to be chained together around the neck in groups of a hundred or more walking down the streets leading to Bagamoyo. The, uh, there's a, 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 a museum there and so forth, and even though slavery was outlawed, this trade continued for several years after that, obviously not going on now anymore. There, Of course, what we're familiar with is in the 1860s during the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation by Lincoln, which says in part, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are henceforth shall be free. So that's the picture of slavery, isn't it? And we were slaves to sin. We were in moral slavery. We were enslaved to sin by our nature. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. We personally, brothers and sisters, were under condemnation without Christ. We were born in Adam because Adam sinned, and so we inherit his guilty nature, and that's a part of our nature, so we're born in sin, but then we're sinners by practice as well, aren't we? As we go through life, we're sinning all the time. We were united to Adam, our first head, and now being united to Christ. We were without hope in our former state. The law condemned us. We were children of wrath. We were enslaved to the devil. He was our master. Slave was our slave owner. In Romans chapter 6, Paul picks up on this analogy. And just read this for us. It's verses 18 and 19. He says, You have been freed from sin you became slaves of righteousness. And I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So you see there, something of the slavery. We were slaves of obedience, enslaved to sin, but now being set free, we're slaves unto righteousness. Paul says in another place, rescued from the dominion of darkness. Well, thirdly, our union with Christ makes our redemption effectual. Because we are united with him. When he died, we died. Isn't that the very picture of baptism given to us earlier in Romans chapter 6? When we are buried with him, as we go down into the water, we're dying. When we come up out of the water, we're rising to newness of life. It's all a very beautiful picture of our union with him. John 15, a beautiful picture. I am the vine, you are the branches. We are united with him. And so you see the phrase here, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now redemption is our present possession. If you're here and you've trusted Jesus Christ, you have been born again, it is your present possession. But there's also a future aspect to redemption, isn't there? One in which I hope that you're longing for and you're looking forward to. It's the redemption that happens in the resurrection when we receive our glorified bodies our final and complete deliverance from our earthly bodies and the power of sin and even the very presence of sin, we're delivered from it all and we're in the presence of God. Romans eight twenty three. not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So there's a future aspect to redemption too. Well, that's the rudiments. That's a quick survey of what redemption is from the Bible. Now let's consider the remittance that secures redemption, our second point. And it's very simply this. It's by his blood or through his blood. When you remit something, you are canceling the debt. You are removing the penalty. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus The blood of Christ paid the ransom for your redemption. This was the cost of your redemption. And blood speaks of the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of sinners. Paul will pick this theme back up later in chapter 2, where he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Were brought near by the blood of Christ. Abe read for us from Hebrews 9, where it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It also says in chapter 10, It is impossible for the blood and bulls and goats to take away sins. It was his blood that bought us back from the marketplace of sin. It is his blood that purchased our salvation. He gave his life as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. In Romans 3, the context being justification by faith, he uses very similar words. It's all very interlinked. In 3.24, he says, Being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. You have redemption, justification, you have his blood all packed together in our faith, all packed together in that short area. Now, the use of blood should call our minds back to the book of Exodus. 
Do you remember that the very thing what we're talking about, the children of Israel being redeemed from captivity and in Egypt and being rescued and brought into the out of captivity and ultimately promised the promised land? It should make you think back of those ten plagues. What was the tenth plague? It was the Passover. And what did they do at the Passover? They took a lamb, right? They took a lamb. They slaughtered the lamb. It was to be eaten in haste, it said. But what about the blood? You were to drain the blood. It was a picture of something. Do you see it? That blood had to be applied. It had to be applied to the doorpost of the house so that when the angel of death comes, he would pass over if the blood was applied to the doorpost. And if it wasn't applied, the firstborn was taken and killed. And so the blood being applied, and Paul can say in 2 Corinthians, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. You see, he is the great, the par excellence, the final Passover, of which everything else was a type and shadow pointing to him. And his blood is applied to believers, not to the doorpost of our forehead, but it is applied to us in a very real way, so that now we can say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news, brethren. That's good news. His blood is the blood of Jesus is precious and efficacious as well. And first, Peter, and the women are studying this wonderful book in the ladies' Bible study. If you're not attending that, I invite you to uh, join them for this. But in chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You see the preciousness of his blood. One commentator said, There can be no thought of cheap forgiveness when we remember that our redemption costs God the life of his beloved son. You see the blood of all those animals hundreds of thousands of animals sacrificed through the time of the Old Testament. Daily sacrifices, yearly sacrifices, sin sacrifices, all these sacrifices all pointed as a type and and, and it was symbolic pointing forward to Christ. Hebrews 9.12 And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once and for all. Notice the perfect tense having obtained eternal redemption. He has obtained it once and for all through his own blood. Paul tells the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, among other things, he says to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. You see, this terminology is throughout our Bibles. We just have to connect all the dots and the pieces and see how it fits together. And then in Revelation chapter 5, just reading verse 9 only, this will be an anthem. These very truths that we're talking about today, if you're feeling bored, you're going to be bored in heaven. Because these are the truths that we will revel over, the the very truths that we will worship God. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You see, we're a very 
racially diverse church here. As you look around, there's several different races that are gathered together into the common bond of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what heaven's going to be like? So much more than this, because he has purchased men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's going to be a glorious time. Well, having looked at the rudiments and the remittance, which is by his blood, finally the results of redemption. And the results are simply this. Your sins have been forgiven and removed. Notice what it says in the text. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, trespasses you can think of as a synonym for sins, but the meaning of the word is a little different. The word sin means what? Missing the mark, right? Missing the mark. We've missed the bullseye of perfection. He says, be perfect as I am perfect. We've missed that bullseye. Trespasses has the imagery of taking a false step and going outside of the boundary of something. So it's very similar. It's a violation of the moral standards of wrongdoing of sin. It's literally falling aside, but figuratively it speaks of a deviation from living according to God's revealed will as he has prescribed for us. When I was young, um, some friends of mine and myself, uh, where I grew up, would go into the country, we'd explore in these woods and forests, and we'd come upon farmer fields and You know, it would be fenced with barbed wire, and there would be a sign, no trespassing. Well, being young and wanting to explore, we would often cross those fences and look around and hike around. And and that's the idea, is it's crossing the boundaries into a forbidden area. That's what this word means. And oftentimes, God has given us a conscience when we cross those boundaries, and we're living in sin, we're living in a way that's not honoring to the Lord, Our conscience tells us, right? And sometimes those farmers would remind us that we're violating and we'd be shot with buckshot and have to run and get over the fence. And so, you boys, don't trespass. (laughs) You might be shot with buckshot. Instead, when you trespass, and according to the biblical definition here of stepping outside of God's prescribed way of living and repent and come to Jesus. Now, the word here for being forgiven and forgiveness here says forgiveness of our trespasses is a fascinating word Um, it can be translated remission it literally means to release release or send away it's the act of freeing from an obligation or a guilt it's this is the same word it's a phasis it's the same word that's used again and again in um, the book of acts so it was one of luke's favorite is recording the sermons that were preached and Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 5, Acts 10, Acts 26, and so forth. And so it's again and again for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission, for the taking away, for the removal of your sins. And again, talk about this, remission, removing out of the way, sending away, you should think. Old Testament, right? We had a clear picture of what that is on the Day of Atonement. Israel would come together, the high priest would take two goats, With the one goat, he would what? Slaughter. And that blood would be taken in and sprinkled on the mercy seat. But on the second goat, the priest would lay his hand on the head of the goat and confess the sins of the people, and that goat was sent into the wilderness never to come back. 
And that's the very picture of what we have here. That's the very, what this word means, to send away, never to return. And you have it pictured there in the scapegoat. As the sins were confessed on the scapegoat and he's sent into the wilderness, it's a very picture of what God does with our sins. It is sent away, never to be brought back up again. This is good news. This is good news. Brethren, not only does his blood secure your redemption, the forgiveness of your past sins, the forgiveness of your sinful nature and your propensity to sin, but it extends to your daily transgressions as well. And if you're anything like me, you're probably keenly aware of your sins from this last week, the many sins that you've committed, the ways in which you've stepped outside of the boundaries of the ways in which you did not hit the bullseye, the ways in which you sinned against Him. When you have an outburst of anger, Maybe it's over the children. Maybe it's in the midst of homeschool. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's to your wife. When you're envious of someone in the workplace that's being promoted and you're not being recognized, that's a sin. We're to give ourselves to the the Lord and trust in His sovereignty. When you're lusting in your heart, that is a sin. You husbands, when you lead more like a dictator than loving your wife as Christ loved the church, you wives, when, you're, when you buckle under that authority and you, you don't submit and you resist and, and so forth, that's a sin. You children, when you rebel against your parents, when your parents give you clear instructions of what to do and your little hard heart says, I want to do it my way, and you rebel against that. All of these sins are the daily sins and many, many more that we deal with. It's common for us. And praise the Lord that this remission covers even those sins, even the sins of today and tomorrow, and that's good news. We must keep short accounts with God. That is, when we do sin, we quickly repent. We just don't say, oh, it's all taken away. I don't have to confess my sin or anything. No, we must confess. We must repent. We keep short accounts with God. Then we keep short accounts with our fellow man, which means men Sometimes you go to your children and you seek their forgiveness because you sinned against them. You keep short accounts with your fellow man. That means sometimes, husbands, you have to eat humble pie and you confess your sin to the co-worker, to your wife, or whatever. But these are the ways in which God has prescribed it. But we must remember, to the degree that we do this, we're not going to atone for our sin. We need to remember, Jesus paid it all, all to MIO. Sin has left a crimson stain He has washed it white as snow. need to remember the words of Paul, you have been bought with a price. And in light of today's message, I hope we remember the price of the blood of Christ. And he says, therefore, glorify God with your body. You've been bought with this price. Glorify God. John Calvin in his sermons on Ephesians preaching on this text said this, God puts our sins out of his remembrance. He drowns them in the depths of the sea and moreover receives the payment that was offered him in the person of his only son. And if you know something of your own sin, this is great news. This is good news. It should cause you to rejoice. Some similar passages in Micah chapter 7. He will again have compassion on us 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7.19 We're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper in a short time. It's the very thing. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood is the effectual means and purchase price of your redemption and the forgiveness of your sins. I was reading this week, one of the Puritans said this, uh, Bates, he said, it would tire the hand of an angel to write down all of the pardons that God bestows upon truly repentant sinners. There are so many sins that we have committed. Secondly, you've been freed from the dominion of sin as well. And Paul preaching, one of these places in a, that I mentioned in Acts 13, he says, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not have been freed from the law of Moses. The remission of your sins leads to the idea of being free, to being, having true freedom, freedom from the dominion of sin and the power of sin. The shackles of sin have been broken. Thomas Watson said, Forgiveness is a golden thread spun out of the bowels of free grace. As we talk about freedom, we here living in America and San Diego, uh, California here, part of America, uh, sometimes we Americans can worship freedom, can't we? Sometimes freedom can become an idol. And we should talk about that just for a moment. The so-called political freedom and social freedoms and so forth. And this surely has become one of our national idols. We can boast of being debt-free. I've managed my money so well, I'm debt-free. I'm free of debt. Uh, we can boast of being self-employed. I'm out from underneath that boss or whatever. Uh, we can boast about freedom from a bad marriage. We can boast about freedom from depression because there's a cocktail of pills that I take and it just helps. Freedom to eat and drink anything you want. Freedom again and again. But is this freedom enslaving us that we have? Galatians 5 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh. You see, the sad thing is this is exactly what we have done as Americans. In our freedom, we have the highest debt per person in the world. In our freedom, we have the highest divorce rate in the world. In our freedom, we have the highest consumption of antidepressants in the world. In our freedom, we have the highest obesity rate in the world. And the list goes on and on. Christ has set us free from sin, brethren, but we need to be careful not to, to become slaves of our cultural idols and our political freedoms. The fact is, each of us lives for something. And we would do well to remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so, brethren, this is why we need balance in our lives 
This is why we need balance in our career and seeking to excel in our career. Many of these things are, are, are fine in and of themselves, but we can become imbalanced. We can make idols out of anything. Studies at school, even ministry in the church can become an idol. So we need to be careful and lead balanced lives. Well, we've considered the rudiments of redemption, the remittance, and the results of redemption. Now, finally, let's look at the riches of redemption. You have been lavished with the superabundance of God's grace. We have in the Bible the riches of his kindness, the riches of his glory, the riches of his grace again and again. Who's the rich one? It is him. And he graciously bestows these riches upon us as his children. And I love this word in verse 8. The riches of his grace which he lavished which he lavished upon us. You remember the show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Uh, you know, they talk about the lavish lifestyles of these people. Well, God is the one that is altogether rich, and he lavishes upon us his grace. The word means to abound, to superabound, to abundance. Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 3, where he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound and have love, or in love for one another. I'm told that Niagara Falls, every minute at Niagara Falls, 200,000 tons of water fall over the falls into the Niagara River Gorge below as a, as a declaration, as the heavens are declaring the glory of God there. The Lord could have used a lot less water, couldn't he? He could have made the falls a lot shorter, maybe one story instead of 12 stories, but he didn't. And people come from all over the world to look at this. Well, this is a picture of God's grace in Christ. It is according to his riches that he lavished us. And as I said, this word means to, to, to give exceedingly beyond measure, above the ordinary. See, God's grace is not squeezed out to you through an eyedropper, one little drop at a time. He lavishes it with the Niagara Falls of just hundreds of thousands of gallons of water per minute. And that's the picture, the superabundance. It is so lavish. We marvel at its display. It is these riches of divine grace that is the ultimate cause of our redemption. The little word according there, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Again, we've looked at that last time. It means to, to govern something, but also at the same time, it, it gives the reason. And, and it's, he gives according to his riches, not simply out of, his, out of his riches, but according to them. And throughout this book, we're going to see all of this wealth, all of the riches that we have in, in God and in Christ again and again. Paul comes back to this theme, very similar to Colossians as well. So think of this word lavish. When you lavish something upon someone, you heap it more and more and more exceedingly and abundantly to supersize supernatural grace. And that is exactly what we have received in Christ. Well, the very last few words, let's look at those. Verse 8, in all wisdom and insight. Various Bible translations vary with where they put the periods. Just re, I'll remind you, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence in the original Greek. The Bible translators attempt to put periods where they think might be a good place. 
I could show you a Greek diagram of this, this sentence. It is just all over the place as far as modifying clauses and all of this kind of stuff that really has no rhyme or reason. Of course, it's inspired, but it breaks every grammatical rule. <laughs> um, and so the period is just, it's, it's, uh, it's an interpretation of what the translators have. And the NAS, of course, has period after lavished on us. I take all wisdom and insight to go with the preceding clause, and, as do, and the commentators are divided on this, but I would agree with O'Brien that it's better to lengthen with the preceding relative clause that he lavished on us to understand the gifts of his grace in all wisdom and insight. The word wisdom means in regards to the most important things of life, life and death and uh, God and sinful man, heaven and hell, righteousness and sin, reconciliation. It's wisdom in light of the things of God. The word insight means the ability to understand. So put together, I think it means spiritual discernment. And because he's lavished us with all of this, all this is super abundance grace. He's lavished us, and part of that lavishing us is giving us some spiritual discernment of the greatness of God, the grandness of his mercy bestowed to us as sinful people. So the words here refer to uh, what he has given to us, not that all in, in all, the other interpretation would be in wisdom and insight, um, he made known to us the mystery of his will. That would be his wisdom and insight, the God's, and so we'll look at that more next time. Well, having considered this rich text here, verses 7 and 8, redemption accomplished. It's accomplished. I could put redemption accomplished and applied after the John Murray book title. Uh, Redemption has been accomplished and has been given to us. So let's consider a few concluding applications. God's grace being lavished upon us is utterly humbling. I hope that each of us has a better understanding of what redemption is. By the way, he did not simply make something possible for us to choose whether we want to accept that. This is very important. These things that we've been talking about, we're talking about redemption, buying back from the marketplace. We're talking about a purchase price of his blood. The forgiveness of our sins, all of this is vitally connected. And and let me tell you, if you have been redeemed, your sins are forgiven. Jesus did not redeem every person in the world, and only some of them, their sins are forgiven. Everyone that he has redeemed surely has their sins forgiven. Does that make sense? I hope I'm not losing anybody here. Very clearly, it is those who he died for. It is the elect, as we go back up into the paragraph, it is who the Father chose from before the foundation of the world. Though we could do no good or evil or anything, it wasn't looking ahead to see if we'd be good people, because we're the outcasts of the world. Remember, we've established that. But he chose us, that we would be holy and blameless. He predestined us to adoption as sons. It's all his free grace. Do you see this? What a glorious truth that if you're in Christ, you are free from your sin. You've got nothing to pay back for this ransom price. Don't even attempt it. It's an affront to Almighty God. You've got nothing by which you can try to attempt to pay God back. He has provided all. He's lavished us. It's a full and free forgiveness. And what, what joy this should bring us as we encounter the trials of this life. As we encounter the difficulties 
as we encounter death and despair and all of these things that gives us joy and trial. What a delight to be a perfectly pardoned soul. There's no greater news than that to know that your sins are paid for. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Secondly, this should give you the greatest comfort in the gospel. You see, each of us, if you're honest and you look back, some of you were converted very young. Maybe you can't remember a time of rebellion to God. I certainly can. God saved me at age 25, so I've got enough that I can think on. And to think about all of the things that I've been through and all of the hurt that I've been through and how I've been scarred by my time when I was slaved, when I was a slave to sin. Yeah, maybe not from shackles and maybe not from a shackle around my neck, but there's scars from being a slave to sin. But then to remember and to realize that if we're trusting Christ, we're no longer a slave, we're free. And it's Jesus' scars that matter. It is the scars of the Son of God. It's a constant reminder to us for the high cost of our redemption. He's ransomed us by his blood so that we might be free. And this is what makes Jesus so precious. This is what makes Jesus, we want to look into his face someday when we see him face to face, when we get to heaven. This is what makes the gospel so cherished, so priceless. These are the very core truths of the gospel. And there's something glorious about that. David says, how blessed, that is how happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is forgiven is covered. Tell me how a blind hymn writer could pen such beautiful hymns such as this, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. So finally, if you are here today and you're a slave, we can't see the shackles. We can't tell if you're a slave. There's not a green dot on your forehead that says, I'm a still a slave to sin. We don't know. But we beg you, if you're here today and you're in bondage to sin, we invite you to come and to be released from your slavery. You must repent of your sin. You must confess Jesus to be a suitable Savior, the only Savior. To confess Him as the one who has made atonement for your sins. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Receive the gift of faith, the gift that God offers you if you'll repent of your sin and come and trust in Jesus Christ. He will set you free. He will pardon you from all of your sins. He'll give you a new nature. May the Lord work in our hearts. Those of us who are in Christ have a greater appreciation of these truths. And those who have not yet come to Christ, may today be the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time that we could be together and to look into your word. We thank you for the density. We thank you for the wealth of this passage before us. Lord, may we not leave as an unchanged people. May we not leave being forgetful hearers of what we've heard, Lord, but may we revel in these wonderful truths of redemption and forgiveness. Lord, may we cherish these things. We pray, God, that you would teach us humility, that you'd remind us that it's nothing in and of ourselves by which we are saved.
But Lord, may you give us that reassurance that all of our sins are forgiven and what joy that produces. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.